Good morning, Grace City. We'll be in Psalm 2 today. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. The Bill of Rights, which is the first ten amendments to the Constitution, at least on paper, makes the United States the freest country in the world. And I don't have to tell you that as Americans, we love our freedoms. We love that, again, at least on paper, there are so many things that our government can't force us to do. But I've also been thinking this week about this delicate balancing act that many of our laws have between freedom and safety or freedom and security, that very often we are voluntarily, sometimes we're not voluntarily, we're, we're coerced into sacrificing a part of a liberty or a part of a freedom to enhance hopefully everyone's safety or security. You know, and traffic laws are an example of that. Of like, put your seatbelt on. It's like, well, I wanna, I wanna move around the car while I'm driving and the government would say, no, you're safer if that freedom is restricted. And um, driving up to the mountains and back with the elders this weekend, I was again thinking about this curse of speed limits and all, all those things of just like, why, why are there restrictions on my freedom? And of course it's, it's for everyone's safety and security because not everyone is as good a driver as I am, okay? So, but TSA, I mean, every time you get on an airplane, you, are, you, you have like a, a giving up of a little bit of freedom to enhance security. You know, you have freedom of speech, which in this country we highly value your freedom of speech, or at least we kind of did, but you can't say certain things in certain contexts. You can't go into a crowded theater or church and yell fire. You would have some responsibility for that. I was thinking now about like the current debates around gun control, or you could really take any issue and, and what different parties, what different individuals are thinking to take the least cynical approach to it possible is I think many people genuinely are saying, what liberties, what freedoms are we willing to give up a little bit so that like our kids are secure? They're safer. And we think of all these trade-offs. I'm talking about this because Psalm 2, and here's kind of your one big idea. Psalm 2 is going to show us the greatest freedom comes with the greatest security, and both are found in Christ. This psalm is showing us that because Christ is king, we don't have to choose between liberty and safety. 
And we're going to see these three things in this text, kind of going chronologically, starting at verse 1. We're going to see verses 1 through 3, the senseless rebellion of the world, and then the sovereign reign of God. This is where the king is introduced. Who is this king? Who is this son? And then finally, the saving response of the wise. What is this psalm calling us to do in response to the truth presented in the rest of the psalm? So I said point one is the senseless rebellion of the world. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 again. The psalmist writes, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And I want you to notice these are three verses about a rebellion of the world against God and against the anointed. That's the word in the Hebrew. It's the idea of the Mashiach, the Messiah, which would later be attributed to a particular person that will come to. I don't think that'll be a surprise to really many of you, okay? But I want you to note two key features of this rebellion, and this is important because this has everything to do with our contemporary culture. This is a timeless psalm. And the first thing I want you to see about the world's rebellion is its purpose, its aim, is autonomy. Notice how the world characterizes God's law. It's saying... It's oppressive. It's enslaving. God's rules, God's boundaries are like chains. They're like fetters. And they're using language that would have been very common in that ancient world where one nation or people group attacked another and the ones they didn't kill, they put in fetters and chains and they led them away captive and said, you are now enslaved to serve us and do our work for us and prosper us. But you, your prosperity, your freedom is taken away. And what the psalmist is saying here, kind of bottom line, this is how the world thinks. It's like, so long as we are under God's authority, God's rules, God's regulations, we're not free to live how we want to live. We're not free to do what we want to do. And so these rules are a very negative thing instead of seeing them as a beautiful or a positive thing. And they think, therefore, the only solution is to break the shackles and hurl them aside and say, we will not be controlled by God. We will not submit to God's will. We will not submit to God's law. And I want to just point out, um, as you look at those verses, I was trying to think this week, I mean, Lord, like, where do... Where do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Where do they say, we don't like the boundaries that God has given us? And in a very deliberate, almost like conspiratorial way, have plotted and planned over many, many years or even generations to get rid of boundaries and bonds. And I think one of those areas very clearly is the, the whole area around gender and sexuality where our world today looks at what the Bible says and just thinks it's, it's repressive, it's oppressive, it's archaic, it's arbitrary. Um, God puts all these fences around here and the Bible says it's for my good, but I disagree with that because I feel something else. But we see the world just saying, like, we're done with God's boundaries. We're done with God's rules. How we think about truth in so many different ways, we're like, I don't want to think that way. I want to think this new way. And you see a number of things very pervasive in culture. And by the way, this, the, verses 1 through 3, to kind of bring it up to contemporary, something you would understand, this is the plot of basically every Disney movie since the 90s. 
It is like you, you almost always have this little girl who gets this epiphany that my parents are like controlling jerks who just want to make my life miserable. And life would be so wonderful if I broke off the shackles and cast them aside and I summoned the courage to just be true to myself and go be autonomous. And it just goes spectacularly well for her until the moment it doesn't. You know, Elsa from Frozen. She's like, you know what? I'm sick and tired of this. I'm sick and tired of living in this town. You know, I got this little traditional sister, Anna. She's cute and all that. She can, she can do that stuff, but I'm fantastic. Like, I'm a majestic ice princess, and it's time to express myself, you know? And this, this famous song, like, parents, if your little girls were twirling around house singing, let it go, let it go, um, what she's singing about letting go is, like, essentially God-given boundaries and rules, and part of this song, she says, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. And so she goes and she's expressing her own autonomy. I want to be free. I don't want the boundaries. I don't want the rules. I don't want the things that other people are willing to submit to because that's not being true to me. And, and it's fascinating that even with, you know, Disney's, Disney's not like trying to exegete scripture and, and communicate that in cartoons. They're in many ways against scripture, but you, you even follow the story of Elsa, as silly as that may be. And it's like, I just want to be free and I'm going to go do my thing. And what was her reality? Her reality was actually isolation. She was alone. She had this power, but she didn't know how to use it. And so she put her whole kingdom, her friends, her family under this like icy spell that she had no power to reverse herself. She almost kills her sister with this power because she doesn't know how to control it. And ironically, at the end of the, at the, end of the story, she ends up needing a rescuer who's not willing to play by her rules to set things right. And I think that's such a great story of our culture where it's like, I need to acknowledge that there are certain boundaries that just don't work for me. I want freedom. I want security. I trust in myself, my path, my scheme to achieve the ends that I want. And I think we'd be wise to stop and say, you know, how is the freedom experiment of our culture going? How is our personal freedom experiment going? Like, does raging against God and casting, his aside, casting aside his authority, does it really make you free? Is it really liberating to be your own God? And the scripture's answer and history's answer, cultures, I mean, if you study culture over a period of time, the answer is no. It's actually a fool's errand to try to strive for autonomy and freedom apart from God. And that brings up the second key feature of this rebellion in verses one through three, and that is not only that its goal is autonomy, but its outcome, its end, is emptiness. And you see, at the beginning of verse one, it says, the people's plot in vain, and that word, those two words in English, in vain, means either it's, it's delusional from the outset, it's illusory, it's tricking you to think a certain way, you're like, this will lead me to what, I, to what I want. And God's like, no, 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 no. It's a delusion. It's a lie. Like back in the Garden of Eden when Satan's like, if you want autonomy, and by the way, this is the root of the very first sin. 
of like, you need autonomy from God. He has a rule for you that's arbitrary, that's capricious. In fact, it's evil because he just doesn't want you to be as good and as knowledgeable as he is. You got to do your own thing and everything will go fantastically well, Eve. And of course it didn't. It was a delusion. And the word can also mean not only delusion, but this idea of emptiness or vanity or nothing. It's just like wind and it's there and you see it and then it's just gone. I think in this context, I love this, this quote of Tim Keller that I come back to my own thinking often where he says, freedom is not the absence of restrictions, but the presence of the right restrictions. And our culture thinks this way, freedom is the absence of restrictions. You can't tell me what to do. It's, you know, it's my body, it's my choice, it's my money, it's my time, it's my life. And as Keller points out, no, 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 like true freedom is not the absence of all these restrictions, especially like God's very wise and thoughtful restrictions, but the presence of the right ones. And, and he, and I've used this illustration before, you know, if you're a fish and you're like, I am sick and tired of this water, I'm gonna go be truly free. Like you can't confine me to this fishbowl or this pond or this ocean and you flop up on land. You, you, you don't have a freer fish, you have a dead fish. Because the true freedom is found in the right context, in the right kinds of restrictions, okay? I wanna say this about God's law. God's law corresponds to reality. So when he's giving us rules, when he's giving us principles, I mean, particularly in the New Testament, I'm not, I'm not going all the way back to like this civic, civic uh, ceremonial law where I think some of those things was God, even those were not arbitrary, those were God's way of saying, you know, even in terms of like what you eat and don't eat, there's an underlying principle there of like, I want you to look different than the nations of the world. It's not capricious, it's not just arbitrary. It's like, I, I want you to look and behave differently so there's a distinctiveness to my people. But especially when you come to the New Testament and God is telling us what to do with our lives and our minds and our bodies and our souls and our time and our money, those principles that God is giving us in his word, those correspond to reality. Those are the right set of restrictions to set you free to be most fully human as God intended you to be. And rebellion is delusional on its face because it's like, I, I, I'm gonna find freedom outside of and sometimes even in opposition to the way God says his world works, to the way God says my nature works. I disagree, I think my nature works differently than that. And it may feel liberating at first, but it has devastating consequences. And if you want the life that God intends, you're gonna have to come home to God and put yourself back under his authority. I, mean, I think of this so many times when I was a little kid. I was like, man, my, my parents, they just, they just don't see reality the way I see it. They've got crazy number of rules and, and, and oppressive rules. And so there were a handful of times where I was like, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm not going to do this. And I ran away. And uh, like, just to be clear, my idea of running away was behind our property, there was a wall that separated my parents' backyard from like this little business and this creek flowed around here. And I would go around the wall and there was this rock right here in the creek. And I would just sit on this rock and be like, boom, take that. You know, I ran away, what's up? Um, and I would sit on this rock, like contemplating life and like, what am I gonna do with my future? What am I gonna make of myself? Like, this feels so liberating. Like I'm here by myself and I'm not in the yard. And, and then I'd be like, I'm hungry. So I'd go back 
I'd go in the kitchen, I'd be making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich to take back to the rock, and my mom would be like, hey, what's up? And I, you know, just, I wouldn't say like I'm running away, I'd just be like, I'm hungry, you know, and like, take my peanut butter and jelly sandwich back, you know, sit there for a while and be like, yeah, this, this is what's up. Um, and it, it's just stupid, it's empty. Like, where are you going? Like, you, you want the life that you want, you're gonna have to go back and submit to the leadership and the authority of people who actually love you, but who get sideways with you sometimes because I don't think the idea of being a Christian is that you read the Bible and you're like, oh, I just automatically intuitively agree with everything I'm reading in here. There are things in there that for our culture are really easy and things that are really hard. In a different kind of culture, the things that we find hard, they find easy and and vice versa. But the idea is I I can't just sit here and shake my fist at God and think I'm going to strive and find true freedom out there somewhere. Okay, that brings us to the second section, verses four through nine, and the sovereign reign of God. And I want to just show you that, like, in, in contrast to like this frantic, empty plotting of those who want to rebel against God's authority and God's boundaries, what verses four through nine are showing us is just this unrivaled sovereignty of God, where God's like, I'm the true Lord. This is not Star Wars. This is not like there's a light side and a dark side of the forest, and they're going to have to do battle for a long period of time to figure out who, who wins. Now, the son of God who's portrayed here in verses four through nine, it's like he has no rivals. He has no equals. This is no real contest. It's not even close. I want to show you that this psalm demonstrates his sovereignty over the wicked, over the rebellious in in these four ways. First of all, notice verse four. God laughs at the wicked. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. I'm not going to soft all this and make this sound better to our progressive ears than what it is. To laugh, the word here used of laughter, and there are other Hebrew words, there are other Greek words that could be used of laughter. This is not like, you told a joke and it brought delight, ha ha. This is laughing with mockery, with ridicule, with scorn, with contempt. This is a disrespectful laugh. The idea of holding someone or something in derision is to mock or to scoff at or to ridicule. Where does that fit in your view of God? Like, have you put God in this box of like certain things that that we in a modern progressive subculture are like, these are the things that we like to think God is like? And whatever we're meant to take of this, God is clearly not threatened by the foolishness of our rebellion. When the kings and the rulers of the earth use their authority to defy his power, he is not trembling in fear. The psalm is like, he just openly ridicules this kind of rebellion. I mean, I, I don't think it's exactly like this, but uh, many of you know, like the, the middle of our house is basically like this hockey arena. And so our floors, our hardwood floors all torn up from hockey sticks and stuff. And we just play all the time. And uh, sometimes one of my boys, like they'll, they'll get bumped or something as they do when you're playing hockey in a tight space. And uh, they'll just, they'll take their hockey stick as I've seen on TV and they'll just like throw their hockey stick on the floor. And they're like, you want to go? You want to go? And I just laugh. I'm like, sure, let's, let's do this. Uh, because there is, there is a significant size and weight differential for at least a few more years where I'm just like, are, are you serious right now? Like, that's, this is what we're going to do? I'll, I'll do that all day. Sure. And I, I think it's more than that, but the laughter of God is not less than that. Where the nations are raging. They're plotting together. It's like, we've come up with this thing and like, we're going to turn Genesis 1 and 2, like your whole plan for how everything goes right. And we're going to turn it on its head. We're just going to do this. And 
At, the, at a minimum, God's like, are you kidding me right now? Like, you think you have that kind of authority to really threaten me? And, and there's this just ridicule, this disrespect. They're like, I don't, I see what you're doing. I don't care. I don't feel threatened by that. He laughs at the wicked. Secondly, he's angry with the wicked. Verse 5 says, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Verse 12 says, his wrath is quickly kindled. And again, the point here is that God, when he sees a rebellion of people that he cares about deeply, people that are made in his image, he's not like, eh, you're loss. Like, I'll do me, you do you, you're loss, I'm God. It says, no, he's, he's angry. The words used here, I mean, the first one, wrath, this is interesting. The word is actually related to the root word for your nose. And the idea is that, like, if you've seen someone really mad and they flare their nostrils and their, their face gets kind of red, that's the idea of this first word, like flaring their nostrils in anger. The word fury is like fierce anger. The word anger is like indignant or ignited, and it's related to a word with like how you would ignite a fire. And again, I don't know that modern Christians have a big enough theology for stuff like this. Because we're like, wait, wait, wait. You're, you're telling me that God laughs at and is angry against people that plot against him and cast off his boundaries and live how they want to live. And it's like, I don't want to believe in a God like that. I want a God that's more tolerant. And I just want to say, there is no other God. You can accept God, and I mean all of him, or you can reject God. But, but there's not a character of God buffet where you go through and you're like, I'll take the love. I don't want the the laughter. Um, I'll take the grace. I do not want that. Um, the forgiveness, that's cool. Um, the idea that some people are not forgiven at the end, don't like that. Then you end up with like this hodgepodge of like half a God who ironically enough looks just like you, thinks just like you. He's not challenging you because he can't, you, you haven't given him permission to be different in his character. I've also heard this countless times that like, okay, God is like that in the Psalms because that's the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament God is vindictive and hateful and justice and wrath and all that. But the, but the New Testament God, you know, Jesus comes. And I'm kind of like the, the Jesus who pronounced like a dozen woes on the Pharisees, which if, if you understand that word, like how stern of a word that is, like woe, is not like whoa, like your horse. It's like, like, it's, it's like doom on you because you are leading people astray. The Jesus who said, if you lead one little child astray, it's better that a millstone be hung around your neck and you get thrown in the ocean. It's the same Jesus who braided a whip and went in the temple on the last week of his life and just started thrashing people and dumping over the money changers tables and saying, this is a house of worship, this is a house of prayer, and you've turned it into a merchandise mart for your own reputations, for your own prosperity, and, and I'll just say, like, I mean, that's, that's the New Testament God, Jesus. And by the way, I want a God. I need a God who gets angry at sin. Because the reality is I'm doing things, you're doing things that are hurting yourself and hurting other people. And how good would a God be to just sit back again and just be like, well, you're hurting yourself. You're hurting other people that I made, that I care deeply about. But it is the way it is. I love you. It's cool. And, and that, that flimsy, sentimental God is kind of what our culture wants. And God's like, I'm not willing to be that God. That's not who I am. Do you know that, that true love hates? Hates? 
certain things about the object of his love. When, when the object of your love is in self-destruct mode, and parents, you know this, when the object of your love is in self-destruct mode, you're not like, eh, I don't care. I, I just want him to know, like, I just unconditionally love you. No, there, there's just something in you that, like, if you're the parent of a meth addict, you're like, I, I love my child, but I am angry about what this child is engaging in, the boundaries that they've stepped over to seek a certain kind of freedom. God gets angry that way, and his anger is a righteous anger. So God laughs at the wicked. God is angry at the wicked. Number three, God is made king over the wicked. Verse six. This is God speaking, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord, that is Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make your nations your heritage, the, the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And basically what's happening here is that that first Lord, all caps, that's Yahweh. That's like what we think of as like God, the father, sovereign God. And he's saying to someone else, you are my son, today I've begotten you, and he's in, installing him as king on Zion, which Zion is the, it's the temple mount in Jerusalem where the temple is, okay? And what's important to note is that this is not a birth announcement. When he's saying, today I have begotten you, we may hear like, oh, birth announcement, like, yay, you'd love to get that from your friends, you know, whether a card or through social media of like announcing the birth of our child. Um, what this actually is, this phrase in ancient cultures was like a coronation formula. It's not saying that like today this person is becoming my son. It is today this person is being publicly recognized, publicly ratified as my son that he's always been. So, you know, the way this works is like King David has a son, has a son, has a son. And that person, there comes a day where that son doesn't become a son. They, they were born a son but they are recognized publicly as like, this is the new king. And that's what God is doing here, where he's saying there is a coronation of a son. And I think we're, we're wise to kind of pause here and say like, okay, who is he talking about? When does this happen? What's, what's really going on? And I want you to note that Psalm 2-7 is quoted three times in the New Testament, uh, once in Acts, twice in Hebrews, and it's paraphrased in Romans 1. And each time the subject of the text, when it says, this is my son today I've begotten you. Every single time, it's a direct reference to Jesus Christ or Jesus of Nazareth, saying this is the son he's talking about. Now, this is really important. When does God say Jesus is publicly recognized as this is my son installed as king? And we may think, we believe as Christians, Jesus is coming back like at the end of time as we know it. And we don't know exactly when that is, obviously, but he's coming back and, and he's, he's coming to Zion and he'll be king and he'll reign. And, and that's all true. But you know, that's not when scripture says Jesus, in a sense, became this king on his throne. I think the easiest text to look at is, is Acts 13. You can just jot down that reference. This is interesting because the Apostle Paul in Acts 13, he's on one of his missionary journeys. He's planting churches. He goes into a particular synagogue, which is a, a group of Jewish worshipers. So he takes an Old Testament, which is their scriptures, and he starts walking them through these stories about like King David. And King David was promised to have a son on his throne who abided forever, and he was an anointed one. He was a Messiah. Like, who is that? And he starts telling him, that's Jesus. And he's like, and in the language of Psalm 2, 
Never did kings and rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed more than when they conspired together to condemn and crucify Jesus. So they killed him and they buried him in a tomb. And Paul's like, but you talk about plotting in vain, again, using the language of Psalm 2. He says, God raised him from the dead. And he goes on in Acts 13 to say this, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers in the old covenant, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I've begotten you. That's incredible. What he's saying is the world conspired to do its worst. Let's kill the Messiah. Let's get rid of his boundaries. Let's, let's worship what we want to worship. Let's be who we want to be. Let's create our own identities apart from the Father and apart from the Son. But even when the world did its worst, they couldn't help but fulfill God's divine plan. And when the Father resurrected Jesus, in essence, that's the moment he's saying, Behold my Son who was dead and is now alive. You killed him, but he has conquered sin. He has conquered the adversary. He has conquered death once and for all, and there's hope in submitting to him as king because he's defeated everything that could ever defeat you. So he's like, let the scoffer scoff and let the conspirators conspire against God and against his anointed because when Jesus walked out of his own grave on Easter morning, he proved once and for all I'm the true God. I'm sitting on my throne. I am, I am not worried. I am not threatened by the things that are going on in this world. I have a plan and I will work my plan. And that final plan, like unfortunately, but this is truth, verse nine, is that he destroys the wicked who don't repent. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel just showing us here that God has irresistible, overwhelming, final power to crush all those who continue to oppose him. If you walk away from God and God's boundaries, God's design for your life, God could say, I don't, I don't care how many people are in this conspiracy. With, I don't care how many people agree with you, pat you on the back, tell you you're wonderful. You can be your own Lord and God, but at the end of the day, you are not Lord and God. And there will be consequences for walking away from the source of grace and life. Now, if this all sounds horrible and threatening, and it does, I want you to think about this. Why does God bother communicating this to us? You know, if, if his heart is just like, I hate the wicked and I just want to destroy them, couldn't he have just done that without saying any of this? Do you notice verse 10? The whole point of the threat, because it's not an empty threat, it's not an idle threat. The whole point of the threat is that God wants to warn the wicked. He wants to warn the rebel so that you actually have an opportunity to turn your life around, to put yourself back under his care and receive his boundaries. And that's why I call this third point the, the saving response of the wise. Verse 10 says, now therefore, therefore, if this is true, and it is, Therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. The warning, again, is so you have opportunity. Like, pay attention, receive this correction, and you will live and receive the blessing instead of the curse. 
And so two simple things here in closing, I see the saving response of the wise. First of all, recognize we all worship and serve someone or something and choose to worship and serve King Jesus. The decision is not between like, I will worship no one, I will serve no one. Well, of, of course you do. Even to the decree that you align yourself with what the world says in opposition to God, you're serving an ideology. You are bowing to an ideology. You are accepting certain boundaries and constraints on your behavior, your thinking, and you're expecting other people to do the same. So the choice is not between like just truly being free and autonomous and the top of the pile or serving and surrendering to God. It is, do you want to serve and surrender to something that's going to beat you up, exhaust you, and in the end kind of leave you for dead? Or do you want to serve the king who gave his own life for you and rose from the dead to conquer the things that you can't conquer? So a saving response would be verses 11 and 12, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling, kiss the son. These are all signs of respect, adoration, worship. Like, God, I want to bring you my life and I want to serve you. And then finally, take refuge in the one who wants to give you the truest freedom and the truest safety. Look at verse 12. Blessed. Again, happy. We saw this last week. Blessed or happy are all who take refuge in him. And I think the both and of this last phrase here are so important. God isn't saying Give up your desire for freedom and safety and just come to me for something else. He's not saying forget your dreams of happiness and fulfillment, but come to me. Notice how he's actually saying, come to me, come seek refuge in me, hide yourself in me, and I'll give you not only the protection you need, but I'll actually give you the happiness, blessed, the comfort the freedom that you long for. I want us to see, because this swims counter to what culture says, the Bible says, God isn't in a psalm like this just crushing your innate desire for freedom and safety. He's not crushing it. He's saying, I actually want you to be free. I actually want you to be happy. I want you to be like over the moon, rejoicing, blessed, safe, secure in your life. I'm just saying you, you can't get there that way. So you see how even the threat in the end is a kind invitation of a gracious God, like come home to me, seek refuge in me, and I'll be everything and more than you could ever ask or think.